Randy Kraft appeared to be a regular guy on the outside, a successful computer programmer living in sunny Southern California. His murders started in the early 1970s and lasted until his capture in 1983. Kraft's victims were men, usually homosexuals whom he tortured and mutilated while they were still alive. To say the least, it appears that Kraft struggled to come to terms with his own homosexuality. Kraft was caught after police officers pulled him over for erratic driving and discovered his newest victim had died of a drug overdose and was dead in the vehicle. In November 1989, he was found guilty of 16 charges of murder and condemned to die, and he is still on death row to this day. Let's dive into the life and the crimes of Randy Kraft, the scorecard killer. Well, hello, my fellow weirdos. Did you miss me? How is everyone? Are you well? Are you hydrated? <laughs> so my hearty apologies for not putting out anything for a few weeks. Uni and then Corona last week put me on the shelf for just a little bit. But assignments are done and the Rona has pretty much cleared up. So normal schedule will resume. Before we get started, I just want to say a massive love to Something Sinister for the shout-out on their 11th episode. Please listen to them. They are awesome. Cadence and Alexa are absolutely smashing it, so support them and give them all the love. Also, big love to The Notorious Noob and Ash from Crime Time Nerds for the five-star reviews. Go and listen to Crime Time Nerds as well, because they are awesome and their podcast is amazing. Also, a piece of big news from my own podcast, Horror House now has merch. That's right. Next level has been reached. I now have merch. Tees, hoodies, mugs, stickers, and more. So follow the link in the show notes and treat yourself. Not only will you get some bomb-ass merch, you'll be supporting the podcast at the same time. So episode 10, this week, Randy Kraft has his day. Not that he really deserves it, because he's a certified grade A POS. So with that in mind, parts of this episode would be talking about things that are pretty fucking grim. Like, Jerry Brudos is Ned fucking Flanders in comparison to this dude. So... I will be talking about things such as sodomy, such as mutilation, emasculation, rape, torture, you know, just the standard serial killer stuff. So without further delay, let's get to it. So rather regrettably, Randy Stephen Kraft was born on March the 19th, 1945 in Long Beach, California to Opal Lee and Harold Herbert Kraft. He was the fourth child and the only son of the couple. 
Kraft's parents had come to Cali from Wyoming at the start of WW2. His father worked in production and his mother operated a sewing machine. The Crafts lived modestly and Randy's mother worked a series of jobs to supplement their father's income. Opal Craft was still able to find time for her kids, but the same can't be said for old Haroldino, however, who rarely attended social functions with them and was later regarded as being disconnected from the family. Kind of, kind of a, a story that we hear quite often when it comes to serial killers. The Kraft family relocated from Long Beach to Midway City in Orange County in 1948. Kraft's dad converted a tiny wood-framed woman's army corps dorm into a three-bed residence. Kraft's mother rose through the ranks of the Westminster First Presbyterian Church, eventually becoming head of the deacons committee. Randy attended Midway City Elementary where his mum was a PTA member. His intellect was noticed by teachers and classmates and he was deemed intelligent enough to join the 17th Street Junior High School's advanced programmes by 1957. By his teens, Randy had developed a strong interest in politics, becoming a devout Republican with aspirations of being a US senator. He and two close pals started the Westminster World Affairs Club shortly after his arrival at Westminster High. Kraft was once again considered a friendly, clever kid who got A grades regularly at Westminster High. You know, that's that's quite a that's quite a read on someone to be like, oh, they're friendly and clever. Yeah, that that didn't age well. At least the friendly part didn't age very well at all, actually. He was also known to date girls on occasion. However, some classmates and professors afterwards speculated that Kraft was homosexual. Kraft later admitted that he had known he was homosexual since high school, while first keeping his sexual orientation a secret. He was 10th in his 390 student class, when he graduated on June the 13th, 1963. In the fall of that year, he enrolled in Claremont Men's College in Claremont, California, to pursue an economics bachelor's degree. So shortly after arriving at Claremont, Kraft enrolled in the Reserve Officers Training Corps and routinely attended anti-Vietnam War demonstrations. And in 1964, campaign rallies for Republican presidential candidate Barry Goldwater. He later claimed that his activities were only a reflection of his parents' political ideals rather than his own, describing his second year at Claremont as the final grasp um, of his conservative philosophy. Kraft began his first known homosexual relationship in that same year. In 1964, Kraft started working as a bartender at a gay-friendly cocktail lounge in Garden Grove, and he was known to drive to Laguna Beach and Huntington Beach on a regular basis to have casual sex with hustlers. During his years at Claremont, Kraft brought a string of male friends, quote-unquote, to visit his family in an apparent attempt to reveal 
his sexual orientation to his parents. Kraft's parents and sisters were first unaware of his homosexuality. After propositioning an undercover cop in Huntington Beach in 1966, Kraft was arrested and charged with indecent conduct. However, because he had no prior criminal record, no charges were brought. That following year, he underwent a drastic transformation in his political ideals, becoming an outspoken advocate of liberal causes and eventually registering as a Democrat in 1967. Kraft soon rose through the ranks of the Democratic Party and campaigned hard for Robert F. Kennedy's election and even received a personal letter from the senator congratulating him for his efforts. See, he Randy Kraft's just a good guy, man. Good guy. It's unwarranted, you know, this, this POS label. <laughs> um, Kraft had become a slacker student by his senior year, drinking, using drugs, and often participating in all-night gambling and poker games with other students. So Kraft enlisted in the United States Air Force four months after graduating from college. He was stationed at Edwards Air Force Base in Southern California, where he oversaw the painting of test planes after completing basic training in Texas. Kraft climbed through the ranks of the Air Force, eventually becoming an airman first class and supervisor manager. Kraft revealed his homosexuality to his family the same year he was promoted to Airman First Class. Kraft wrote a letter to a friend in which he characterised his father as having, quote, flew into a frenzy while his mother was more understanding, if still disapproving. Kraft's family eventually accepted his homosexuality and he maintained close touch with his parents and siblings while his siblings stated that when stated that when he revealed his sexuality to them, he began to separate himself from them. After disclosing his sexual sexual orientation to his superiors, Kraft was discharged from the Air Force on July the 26th, 1969. The reason for the discharge was officially reported as medical. As a result, Kraft sought legal assistance from a lawyer to overturn the grounds for his dismissal. The Air Force, on the other hand, you'll be shocked to know, refused to amend his discharge status. Kraft returned to his parents' house after his discharge and found work as a bartender. At Huntington Beach in March 1970, Kraft met a 13-year-old Westminster boy named Joseph Gerald Fancher. Fancher told Kraft that he had run away from home on that day. In response, Kraft welcomed the adolescent to his home, saying that Fancher would be able to live with him. Which, when you consider that Joseph was 13 and Randy, I think, was probably close to 30 at this point, that's a big, big, full-on extremely red, red fucking flag. Fancher consented and went to Kraft's place in Belmont Shore, where, guess what, he was drugged and sexually abused. 
After Kraft departed for work, Fancher escaped from the flat hours later. An ambulance was dispatched after a member of the public became concerned about Fancher's drugged and unkempt appearance. Due to the sheer amount of medications Fancher had taken, his stomach also had to be pumped. Kraft got new work as a forklift driver in Huntington Beach in 1971. Following his military discharge two years prior, he enrolled at Long Beach State University, concentrating in education to advance his job chances. Kraft also met Jeff Graves, a fellow teaching student from Minnesota who was four years his junior and he, with whom he began a relationship. So here we are. Now the starter is, is out the way. It's the meat of the episode, people. The main course. Again, this section ain't going to be pretty. In fact, in parts, it's going to be pretty fucking horrific and will include some pretty heavy stuff, just so you know. So Kraft is suspected of killing a total of 67 people between 1971 and 1983. His suspected victims were all males aged 13 to 35, with the majority being in their late teens to early 20s. 16 of these homicides occurred between 1972 and 1983, and Kraft was charged with and convicted of each of them. Many of his victims were US Marines, and their bodies were found to have high levels of both alcohol and tranquilizers indicating that they had been abused and killed while unconscious. Kraft's victims were usually enticed into his car with the promise of a ride or a drink. The victims would then be piled, like, and I mean filled, with drink and or other other narcotics once inside Kraft's vehicle. They were then chained, tormented and sexually abused before being killed most commonly by strangulation, asphyxiation or bludgeoning, though some victims had also ingested a lethal amount of medications and at least one victim was stabbed to death. The the victims would subsequently be dumped along or near numerous roadways in Southern California. However, this was not always the case. Several of Kraft's victims were driven to his house before being murdered, according to photographic evidence discovered at his residence. Many of his victims had their genitals, chests and faces burnt with a car cigarette lighter and others had substantial blunt force damage to the face and the head. Foreign objects were found placed into the victims' rectums in many cases while other victims had been emasculated, mutilated and dismembered. The majority of Kraft's murders took place in California, while some other victims were killed in Oregon, and two more victims were killed in Michigan in December 1982. So, as you can see, Randy Kraft was one gargantuan waste of oxygen and the poster child for birth control. Like, wrap it up, guys, because you could have this absolute fuckhead running around if you don't. So on October the 5th, 1971, authorities discovered the naked body of Wayne Joseph Duquette, a 30-year-old Long Beach resident near the Ortega Highway. 
Duquette, a bartender at the nearby Sunset Beach gay bar, the stable, was last seen alive on September the 20th. Putrefaction had obliterated any evidence of foul play and the cause of death was determined to be acute alcohol poisoning due to a high blood alcohol level. Investigators believe Duquette was Kraft's first murder victim since the first line in his personal journal, referred to as his scorecard, hence the name the scorecard killer, says stable. Like, what kind of absolute piece of shit do you have to be to keep a scorecard of all of your victims? Like, like that's, that's next level. I told you, Jerry Brudos is a Teletubby in comparison to this dude. Hey, Steven. Hey, Leo. I love horror movies. So do I. I don't love that I have nobody to talk about them with. It sucks you see something great, you tell your friends to go see it, and they don't have the time because they have kids and a job. (sighs) They have a life. Boring. I know. Imagine if there was a podcast where you could make your buddy watch a horror movie and under threat of death they had to, and then you got to talk about it, crack jokes, things like that. That sounds wonderful. What if we did it? We could do it. Under threat of death. Yes, so much death, so much threat. I love it. We could call it Spoils of Horror. Great name. And guess what? What? We've been doing it for three months. What? It's crazy. We're on all major podcasting platforms. You can search Spoils of Horror on all social medias. Come check us out. Hang out with us. Have a good time. Join us. If you dare. Dun, dun, dun. Oh, Lord. Here we go. It's... Time to get into the grim stuff, people. So buckle up, buckaroos, because we're in for a bumpy ride. But we'll get through it together. We'll get through it together. So Kraft murdered a 20-year-old Marine named Edward Daniel Moore 15 months after Duquette was murdered. On December the 24th, 1972, Moore was spotted leaving Camp Pendleton's barracks. On the morning of December the 26th, his body was discovered alongside the 405 freeway in Seal Beach. Moore's torso suffered abrasions from being thrown from a moving car. He was also chained at the wrists and the ankles, then battered in the face with a blunt instrument before being garroted, according to an autopsy. A theme that becomes very common... um, is a sock had been shoved into his rectum and he had bite marks all over his body. On February the 6th, 1973, six weeks after Moore's murder, the body of an unidentified guy thought to be between the ages of 17 and 25 was discovered alongside the Terminal Island Freeway in Wilmington. A ligature had been used to strangle this victim and a sock again had been placed into his rectum. Kevin Clark Bailey, uh, aged 17, was found dead by a road in Huntington Beach two months later on April the 14th. Prior to his murder, Bailey had been emasculated and then sodomized. Two more victims had been slain by July the 28th, an unidentified teen whose dismembered body was discovered in Wilmington on April the 22nd, and a 20-year-old named Ronnie Jean Weeb, whose strangled body was discovered by a 405 freeway on-ramp on July the 30th, two days after he had vanished. 
Weave's wrists and ankles had welt markings on them, indicating that he had been shackled and suspended from a device prior to his death. Kraft is suspected of killing at least one more time in 1973. Vincent Cruz Mestas, a 23-year-old bisexual art student, was discovered dead in the San Bernardino Mountains, sorry, the San Bernardino Mountains, on Dece- I'm awful at pronunciation, I'm sorry, on December the 29th. One of the victim's socks had been shoved into his rectum. I know, a shocker. Um, as it had been with several other victims. Mester's hands were removed from his body and they were never discovered. Five more victims had been discovered by or near major highways in Southern California by by November 1974, three of whom had been definitively linked to the same attacker. Two of the victims, 20-year-old Malcolm Eugene Little and 19-year-old James Dale Reeves were found beside a freeway with foreign objects inserted into their bodies, while the third victim, 18-year-old Marine Roger Edward Dickerson, was found with bite marks similar to those of several previous victims. How are you? How are you guys doing? Are you good? It's it's fucked, isn't it? I mean, it's so, so fucked. And it's why this episode is going to be a two-part because I, I, I don't want to subject you to an hour and a half of this. <laughs> like, but are you guys all right? Pause the episode, go and make a, a brew. To be honest, go and make something stronger. I, I really don't blame you. So on January the 3rd, 1975, Kraft kidnapped and murdered John Lerus, 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 a 17-year-old high school student. The teen was last seen getting on a bus in Long Beach and his strangled body was discovered the next day at Sunset Beach with a foreign item protruding from his anus. Two people moved Laras's body into the ocean according to drag marks on the beach near where his body was discovered. On January the 17th, two weeks after this murder, the body of Craig Jonatus, 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 Craig Jonatus, oh God, I think I've got that very wrong, a 20-year-old, 21-year-old man was discovered dumped in the parking lot of the Golden Sales Hotel along the Pacific Coast Highway and Loins Drive in Long Beach. Jonitis had been strangled with a length of string, possibly a shoelace, and died as a result. So by January 1975, a total of 14 victims had been traced to the same criminal whose bodies had been discovered abandoned in four different counties over the previous three years. All of the victims were Caucasian men with comparable physical features. Homicide investigators from multiple Southern California counties met in Orange County on the 24th of January to discuss their progress in the hunt for this mystery killer. Investigators were given an FBI description of the killer, which described him as a meticulous, organized lust killer with above average intelligence who was unconcerned 
about the interests of wealth, about the interests and welfare of society. Dr. E. Mansell Patterson from UC Irvine also profiled the Slayer as a man who desires to be masculine but does not feel masculine, gnawing the nipples and genitals of his prey to symbolically make the victim a female. Because two victims had paper tissue residue in their nostrils, a practice known to be utilised in the military to prevent bodies from purging after death, some detectives suspected... Suspected? Uh, looking sus. Some detectives suspected the murders were committed by more than one person, one or more of whom had a military history. The stuffing of socks into the victim's rectums was also said to be done to prevent purging while the body was being transported to the disposal site. Investigators at this point had no solid suspects in the case. On the evening of March the 29th, 1975, Kraft enticed two young men, Keith Crotwell and Kent May, into his Ford Mustang from a Long Beach parking lot. The teenagers were given alcohol and Valium as Kraft drove about Belmont Shore and Seal Beach in an apparently aimless, random manner. May later stated that he felt catatonic because of the Valium and the alcohol he had prior to passing out. Two acquaintances of the youngsters saw a distinctive black and white Mustang pull into the parking lot where Crockwell and May had last been seen and paused before the driver leaned across, unlocked the passenger door and pushed the unconscious but otherwise unhurt May out onto the pavement. After that, the motorist sped away from the accident scene. Crockwell was slumped against the mystery driver's shoulder when he did so according to his friends. Crockwell's skull was discovered on a pier at the Long Beach Marina on May the 8th, and the rest of his body was discovered six months later. Following the announcement, Crockwell and May's two pals searched their neighbourhood for the distinctive Mustang, suspecting that the murderer was a patron of a Belmont Shore gay club. They discovered the car less than a mile from their house, took down the license plate number and reported it to the police. And that will bring us to the end of part one of episode 10. Randy fucking Craft, people. I mean, oh my lord. (laughs) What a waste of oxygen. What a waste of oxygen. So I hope you enjoyed... I don't know if enjoyed is the right word. I hope you tolerated, really, part one of my first ever two-part episode. Feels weird. (laughs) Part two of this stroll into the absolute poss that is Randy fucking Craft will be out next Friday. As always, you can find Horror House, True Crime and The Macabre on all podcasting platforms. The podcast is also on Instagram and Twitter at horrorhouse underscore pod. And there is a Facebook page at horrorhousepod. So please give those pages a like and a follow. Also, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts and a rating on Spotify too. And check out the new merch store. I'm super stoked with it. There's been some really good feedback as well. So have a look. It's got some awesome stuff, some awesome, awesome feedback. And treat yourself. You know, why not? We all love 
a bit of retail therapy. So go and have some retail therapy. So all that's left to say is until next time, stay spooky. <laughs>